Acts 14, verses 21 through 28, which is going to be 923 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Here's what it says. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So you notice that Pastor Kyle read the scripture because both of us knew there's a lot of really tricky names in that. And we, we both also know, listen, you just say it with confidence. Nobody else knows how to pronounce them. You just say it and everybody's going to believe it, right? All right, so far you are a very lackluster congregation. Let's hope things get picked up from this point on, right? How many of you um, appreciate Pastor Kyle? How about we give him, yeah, amen. Now you're going to learn in this message that Pastor Kyle and myself and Pastor Johnny are not the only pastors of our church. Did you know that we have several more? You just don't hear about them enough, but I'm going to introduce what I mean by that in just a little bit, so hang on to that. We're about to enter back to our Acts series. I am really excited as my son is leaving. I am really excited um, about where we're heading because we're going to be back in the Acts series for a little bit and then break for the Advent series. And then I think we're going to be able to start helping you understand what's the future direction of our church. It is really exciting where God is leading us, um, not only in future direction by way of vision and mission, but by way of staffing pieces that are coming together um, eventually. So I'm really excited about where we're heading. But I'm excited because I've been waiting to get back to Acts. I, I think I'm going to say this um, with absolute full confidence, but I want to say it very carefully as well. What is going on in our church right now? I want you to really hear from my heart. Don't pinpoint this to persons and individuals. If I could ask for grace, don't be upset with people. Whether that would be me or previous staff or elders. Listen, it's, you could be concerned and yes, ask your questions. I want you to do that. You know who I really want you to be angry at? is the devil. This is a spiritual warfare that we are in. And I've been saying this for three months. I really believe that what is happening right now is because the Acts series by far has been the most arousing by meaning Christians getting moving, rising up and moving on mission that I have ever preached in my life. We were having people lead their friends to the Lord bring their friends to Christ, going out in the community, love never fails. We had so much movement going on. I'm telling you what's happened is the devil rose up and struck back. That's really the core and the root 
of what's happening. We need to go to battle. We're inviting you to pray after Saturday evening services for the next three Saturdays. Come out here to this sanctuary. One of them will be at Mark Street, but come pray with us as we go to battle against this spirit of division and strife. And that's how I would encourage you as we go back into Acts, because you're going to see this in a minute, that Jesus, I'm going to do a real high-level overview, all right? I'm sending the sermon drone 40,000 feet up in the air, and we're going to get high-level overview, okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we saw Jesus say, you, were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it happened, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. There's 120 people up there. And rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hear what happened. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know really where that's going? And this is what we saw in this series. That 15 times Luke tells us that somebody or people were filled with the Spirit. And every one of them, you got to hear this, every one of them gained the power and the boldness and the ability to testify of Jesus. So if you're thinking in your theology that being filled with the Spirit is all about speaking in tongues and all about laying hands on and healing somebody, and listen, you're not even at the pinnacle of the, of the purpose for the, the Spirit's filling. It is to enable Christian, your mouth, to witness and to testify of Jesus Christ. That's the end game for the Holy Spirit when it comes to the mission of Jesus. And that's what we've been seeing, and so many of you have been responding. And like the first century church, they started in Jerusalem. You remember the story, right? You remember how it unfolded? And then it went to the surrounding area, the southern part of Israel, Judea. And then it crossed over prejudicial boundaries into Samaria. That's the power of the Spirit of God. And then it crossed over the Mediterranean Sea to Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. This is the power, and this is just the first stage. What we're going to be moving into starting even next week, Lord willing, is stage two. How is the Spirit of God going to get the gospel to the end of the earth, all of the Roman Empire, even outside of the Roman Empire, beyond it? All of this is what's coming, and the rest of the story from the book of Acts. And I am really excited that I get the privilege of walking you through that in this church. So here we are, we are returning to Acts chapter 14, we're in, it. we're in verse 21, and I want you to remember that the apostles Paul and Barnabas had been on a missionary journey, and they'd been into modern day uh, Turkey, which was called Asia Minor in the first century, and there they are giving the life-giving message of salvation in Jesus Christ. So there's all kinds of regions in Asia Minor. There's Pamphylia, there's Galatia, they're mainly in Galatia. And while they're there, two things happen. 
Now, I want you to really hear this because, friends, if you get on mission, and if you continue on mission, let's say you go to college, or you go to high school, or your job, your neighborhood, your family, when you get on mission and you become a witness empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit, you got to listen, two things are going to happen. And the track record is all through the Bible. Number one, people are going to come to know Jesus. Amen? How many of you, no show of hands, this is a rhetorical question, how many of you would just be so excited if God would start using you more and more to lead lost people to Christ? Let's get some sober thinking for this for a moment, okay? How many of you, in this one, I want you to show of hands if you would. And if you're at home, I want you to be thinking through this. I want you to be even asking yourself this question as well. How many of you have a, an unbelieving person in your life? Raise your hand. Do you care if they go to hell or heaven? Now listen, be careful, because I'm going to answer how you can know that. I'm going to show you how you can know if you care. Are you telling them about Jesus? Please be careful. If you're saying you care, that your friends and the people around you are going to go to hell and not eternity with Christ, and you're not speaking the message of life and hope to them, then what does that really show you about how much you care? That's sobering. And when you and I get on mission, we're going to see people come to know Jesus. And number two, we're going to see opposition rise up. That's always what happens. And we're going to see that. We've been seeing that. Don't you remember when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra and so many people were coming to know Christ? Here comes that group of Jews from all over the region, and they gathered there in Lystra, and they incited the mob to actually drag Paul out to a field and start pelting him with rocks until his body fell down, they thought, dead. They thought he was so dead, they left. And his friends, Barnabas, and all these new believers came out to that field, and they gathered around Paul. I'm pretty sure they were gathering to start giving a eulogy, because I think they thought he was dead, when all of a sudden he was revived, and he got back up. And what did Paul do? This is amazing. He walked back into Lystra and began encouraging the disciples again. That's a hero of the faith. And Paul is no different than you and no different than me. That's the life we are being called to. And we return back to the story of Acts. And what I'm going to show you, all that was introduction. And what I'm going to show you is what the early church focused on in the first century and what Cornerstone Church needs to regain focus on. Number one, they focused on disciple-making. Let's read it together, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel, Paul and Barnabas, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Their focus, oh, this is so different than modern day. I went to Liberty University. I had to sit in evangelism classes time after time, semester after semester. The focus was always, always, always back in the 80s 
on making decisions for Jesus and tracking them. How many people did you lead to the Lord this week? That was always the focus. But we're really seeing the first century really not focusing on decisions as much as on disciples. We're to make disciples. And Jesus says to us in the Great Commission, and Christian, this is the only mission we have. There's not another one. There's not a backup one in case this one doesn't work. This is the mission that you have that I have if you're a Christian. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the only verb in the entire command. I know some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, there's other. No, they're participles. The only verb is make disciples. How do you do it? You first of all, go. You go. All right, now come on, let's get sober in our thinking. That means you open your mouth and you speak and you testify. That means you move your feet towards people. That means your trajectory is not waiting for them to come to you, but you taking the initiative and going to them. We are the sent ones, not the waiting ones. We go. And if you don't go, you will die never making a disciple. That's the fact. They're not coming to you. And how do you do it? You go and then you baptize them. That doesn't mean you find the nearest body of water and you dunk them or go find an elder to do it for you. That is just a phrase that means you win them to the Lord. Present the gospel message. And then when they come to the Lord, the third one is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's making disciples. That's training them up. That's showing them what the gospel means. How do you walk with God? It's all of the Sermon on the Mount. We're all to get moving. We're all to get winning people to the Lord. We're all to get teaching them and disciple making. And when we do we're going to have the opportunity to do exactly what Paul says, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Luke said this. He wrote this. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. What on earth does that mean? I mean, come on. We don't talk like this. When's the last time you went up to somebody and said, hey, you know, I think the Lord wants me to help strengthen your soul. We just don't say this. So what does it mean? Because it's kind of mysterious. The soul is your inner spiritual being. So how do you strengthen a person's inner being? Well, Luke's not going to leave mystery in this. He's not going to say, hey, get out and go strengthen the souls of other believers and figure out how to do it on your own. No, the Bible doesn't do that. It tells us, it gives us a command, and then it shows us how to do it. And look what Luke does. Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to continue in the faith, verse 22. All right, encourage is one of my top five favorite words in the entire Greek. And here's one of the ways that was used by sailors. Let's say that we're all in a boat, and we're out in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, and we get a storm that comes on us, and it cracks our center mainsail, the mast. It just cracks and topples. We have no more sail. We have no more power to overcome inertia. We are right in the middle of the Mediterranean. We are drifting. We have no ability to be propelled. But on the horizon, we see another ship. 
And so we hurry up and raise up the flag of distress that all maritime sailors knew. That ship sees it and comes alongside and ties their boat up against yours and helps you make the repairs to your ship. But if the repairs are too big, they tow you to the nearest harbor. This is the exact word they used for that rescue mission. Encouraging. When's the last time that somebody, when your faith was ebbing, when your faith was taking a hit, that they tied up to your life and they encouraged you, they towed you to a safe harbor, they helped you make the repairs, they did not leave you until you were rescued? Or when's the last time you've done that for somebody? See, if we want to be a church, a cornerstone like the first century church, then every single one of us has to be on high alert, looking for distress flags. And when they go up, it's not the elder's job. It's not the lead pastor's job. It's not Second Street Campus Pastor Kyle's job. It's all of our job. And we all get the privilege of it because the Spirit of God is filling us. And when the Spirit of God is filling us, he's going to enable us to encourage the faith of others to continue. But there's a warning. And I hope you hear this. Jesus himself said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. There ought to be a bit of a tremor coming into you. Because that person that you love, that you know made that profession of faith at that camp when they were 12 years old, but has now in their 30s completely abandoned Christ. You want to hope and you want to cling that they're really a Christian and they're going to be in heaven with you one day, even if they have walked away from Christ. And I'm telling you, they will not be in heaven with you unless they return. That's sobriety. That's clear thinking. And that doesn't mean that they were saved and lost their salvation. Absolutely not. That is an absolute theological impossibility. If you are saved, the Spirit of God will persevere you to the very end of your life. And how will he do it? He will bring people in the church around you to tie up their boat to you, their heart to you, and keep your hand on the anchor of your hope and endure you to the end. But you must endure. And I see this more in parents and in my own parenting where our children, your child, might have prayed a prayer when they were four. And even though they don't want anything to do with the Lord today, at least you know they prayed their prayer and their ticket to paradise was punched. That is poor, fatal theology. You must endure to the end. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, how do you help them? You exhort one another every day. Encourage, it's the same word. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christians, Cornerstone, I want to tell you something. Unless we get serious about encouraging one another to continue in the faith, some of us are going to fall away. And it's not that they're going to lose their salvation. They're going to get to the end of their life and prove that their salvation was never genuine to begin with. We bear responsibility for one another. We must encourage our faith to continue. 
Why? Because of look at verse 22. Paul and Barnabas said, if you want to encourage and strengthen the souls of people, you warn them, new believers especially. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Christian life does not go around the hurricane. It does not go around the trial. It does not go around storms in life. It goes right through the center of them. And when a trial, now listen, when a trial comes to you, first of all, know this, it never got to you but through the permission of God. He will never allow a trial in your life that he does not either bring or give permission for. But when that trial hits you and it will almost hit you without any kind of premonition, without any kind of advance warning, when it hits your life, God has a motive, God has a purpose that is absolutely diametrically opposed to the devil's. Here's what God's is. He wants that trial to actually prove your faith genuine. And by going through it, holding on to his righteous right hand, and let me correct that because the Bible never once tells us we've got to hold on to his righteous right hand. It tells us he's holding on to us with his righteous right hand, and who can break that grip? When you go through that, God wants your faith to be made genuine, to be proved genuine, and for your endurance to grow and to persevere through the trial. Man, I'm telling you what, the devil has a totally different motive. You know what he wants to do? He wants to start whispering seditious little lies into the soul of your faith. Does God really care? Does he even know you're going through this? Well, if he does, why would a good God let you suffer like this? And all of a sudden, a little crack emerges in your faith like water in the frozen regions of asphalt, and it widens, and the next trial makes it even wider, and the devil keeps whispering, God cannot be trusted, but I can. Try this idol. It's a God substitute. He's guaranteed to help. And all of a sudden, your faith can fall into that fissure that opened up, and you can fall away from the Lord. That's the devil's schemes. But we have the shield of what? Faith. To extinguish his fiery darts. You see, you've got to continue in your faith because there's going to be tribulations coming. But how are you to continue in your faith? We need people in this church, every single person that's called a Christian, to come around and encourage and speak truth and not leave you through the trial alone. Tie up their ship to yours. Make sacrifices in life. Reorient your schedule. Stop activities if you need to in order to get the time. Because that's how the first century church lived. But there's a second one. Focus on establishing elders. Not only did they focus on making disciples, they focused on establishing elders. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I told you a moment ago that the New Testament model was producing disciples, not amassing decisions. Now we're going to see the New Testament model was multiplying churches and establishing elders. And I want to shock you maybe a little bit. Maybe some of you really could care less about this. But did you know that there's not a single New Testament instance of a single elder church? 
Not one. You will never find a church in the New Testament that only had one elder. They had a plurality of elders. They had a team of elders. And here's even shocking point number two. Do you know that every single elder in the Bible is also called a bishop and an overseer? Listen, and a pastor. You want to really honor pastors during the month of October? Then you ought to be honoring the elders. Because that's what I am. I'm an elder. They are our elders, our pastors. There's no difference in the Bible. And there's not the lead pastor, Tim Ackley, that has 51% of the vote. And then all the other elders, they're my minions. They've got 49% of the vote. That's not how it works. We're all equal in authority. We work together as a team. It doesn't mean we're equal in influence. I have the privilege of preaching every week. You have the privilege of knowing me personally, or you have the curse of knowing me personally, however you want to interpret that. And you don't always get to know your elders as closely as Kyle and I. So while we're equal in authority, we're not always equal in influence. But every elder is a pastor, and every pastor is an elder. And we serve as a team. But what do we actually do? Well, Paul is going to make it very clear. We're going to dig into this deep when we get there. But look at Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock, all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So we have an awesome Tim Gibson at Ebenezer. We've got an awesome Paul Wilson at Calvary. We've got an awesome Tim Zuck at Forks. Our elders are not their overseers. We pay attention to Cornerstone. We love them. We want to work together with them. They're my friends. But we pay attention to this church, to the flock here at Cornerstone. Why? Because the Spirit has made us overseers. To do what? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's almost like somebody saying, hey, I'm going to go to Florida for five months Can I give you my most priceless family heirloom that we've had for 40 generations to keep safe while we're gone? The most priceless heirloom of God is his church. It's his blood-bought possession. Because Paul says, I know, or Luke says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, that word admonish is not an easy word. It's got teeth. And elders need to have teeth. How do you be a kind, gentle, toothy elder that's not afraid to speak the truth? That's what our elders are learning to do. And these elders at these churches were committed to the Lord. They were set apart for a special task requiring special grace from God to fulfill it. So every church that Paul and Barnabas started, they put elders to be their overseers and pastors called elders. But we get to the third and final point. So here's what I've said so far, in case I'm losing you a little bit. The first century church, you know what they were busy doing? They were busy making disciples, not trying to fill their pews with numbers. Oh, that's a totally different way to be a church. 
It's awesome. Number two, they were a church that understood the value of their elders, and their elders led courageously. But number three, they were a church that knew the power of testifying of what God is doing. Look at verse 26. They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had, that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, let's stop there for a moment. Paul and Barnabas, you know how long they were gone on this journey? I mean, if you read the narrative, which is what Acts is, it's a narrative. If you read it, you might think, well, they were gone for a few weeks. They're gone for a year. This took a year. And after a year, they came back and noticed that the church gathered. The implication is the entire church gathered to greet them and hear from them. And that might seem insignificant to you, but I want you to remember that this church just a year before had all come together to commission Paul and Barnabas, Acts 13.3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands, they as the church, they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off. That meant they were personally invested. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to remember before I ask you this, that you do love me, that you have a lot of grace for me, and that I will never, ever knowingly preach legalism. It must be the gospel. So I'm going to ask you a question. Every one of you, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, are you personally invested in this church? How do you answer that? Are you regularly here? Not everybody. Even more importantly, because I'm never going to be a legalist, I was in a church back in the 80s that told you every time the church doors were open, you had to be there. That will never come out of my mouth, ever. I said, are you regularly here? And are you serving You've got a spiritual gift whose primary purpose is to build up your church. And if you're not using it, we suffer. Are you using your gifts? Are you investing your time, talent, and treasure? Honestly, you, if you know me well enough, you know. I don't worry about money. I just don't. We have a very generous church, but I don't worry about money. God's going to do that. I want to call you to generosity unabashedly. The gospel promotes that in all of us, me too. But my generosity that I go for is your generosity in your time and in your love. Are you in the community of our church? Are people tying their boats up to you? Are you tying your boat up to them? Are you encouraging people to continue in their faith? Are you coming alongside people and loving them? That's what I really mean, are you personally invested in this church? And if you're on the periphery, here's what I've seen in 28 years of pastoral ministry, eventually you're going to leave, and you're not even going to tell us when you leave. And the whole time I'm going, please come in to the community of the house of the Lord and personally invest. The devil's going to pick you off. 
You've got to invest in community. It's what the New Testament church was all about. Every single Christian invested. See, they came together. And Paul and Barnabas declared, verse 27, all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They had a single-minded mission, undivided by the interests of the world. I read an article probably 20 years ago that's never left my mind. I think it's true, although I can't verify it with data, but they said this, the hardest two places in the entire country to build a church, northwest and northeast. And as I've talked to my pastor's friends, my pastoral friends, I found that to be disturbingly true, and mainly because we are so frenetically busy. I'm asking you to whittle down your life so you're not so busy and invest in people in the kingdom of God. If you're too busy to invest in the kingdom of God, you are too busy. And I can't make you do that. All I can ask is that you will respond and do it and get involved in the lives of people and encourage their faith with an undivided interest. You see, the power of God had been on display all through this one-year missionary journey. People were coming to know the Lord, and even though opposition came up, even though Paul was stoned, God preserved him, and ministry expanded, churches began, elders were put into place, they encouraged one another in their faith, even through tribulation. But now I want you to listen as I'm almost getting done with the message. I want you to hear these words from Revelation. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And I want to teach you a brief principle. And Christian, listen to this as if your soul depends on it. If anybody ever comes against you with accusation and slander, you must know it is not coming from God. He will never speak that way to you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yes, he may rebuke, and yes, he may discipline, but he will not accuse. He will not denigrate your character. He will not seek to tear you down. That is always time after time without fail from the devil. And he can motivate Christians, and he can motivate non-believers the same way to accuse and slander one another. If it's coming into your life, shove it off. It has no power. It's not coming from God. I'll tell you where your power is. Look what he says. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. You know why that accusation has no power? Because you're covered in the blood of Christ. You've been made a new creation. You are not who you were. 
You are who you are, made that way by Christ. And he who knew no sin became sin and took all of your guilt, all of my guilt upon himself and died for that, extinguishing the guilt, the, the wrath and the judgment of God. And in its place came the favor of God and the righteousness of who you now are in a new creation. Therefore, any accusation coming to you is not coming from God. It's coming from the devil. Claim the blood of Jesus. But there's another power you have. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even, to, even unto death. Do you understand, Christian brother and sister, the power of your testimony? Do you know what's happening when you testify of what Jesus is doing in your life? You are sending the devil running, and he will hate it, but he will have no choice but to flee. That's the power. This early church was filled with testifying. Now listen, let me ask you a question. Come on, we're not off the hook. When's the last time you testified of God's great power in your life? When's the last time you declared it fearlessly, boldly, The more we testify, the more the devil is overcome because we're covered in the blood of the Lamb. And the more power we will see as a church in this community, in your neighbors, in your classmates, in your employees that you work with. All that power is coming because you're covered in the blood and you are testifying of the power of God. And then we get verse 28, which seems like a throwaway verse. All right, I guess Luke had to close chapter 14 somehow. This is how he did it. No, it's an important verse. And there remained no little time with the disciples. You know what he's saying? They were there for a long time. Back at home, recovering, enjoying community. And I'm going to tell you something that I hope you leave here with. If you want power in your life as a Christian, you will find it when you are in community. And if you will not get in community, do not be surprised by the end of your life, you wonder, I did so little. God did so little through me. Because there is great power in community. Get into a growth group. Get serving in this church. Be here regularly. Invest. Tie your ship up to the flailing, broken-down vessels around you and encourage them to continue in their faith, even in the midst of tribulations and storms. And make disciples. Don't focus on decisions. And testify to what God is doing in your life. You will only invigorate the faith of everybody who hears. Amen? That was weak. Even that little precious child is louder than you. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you as we close this service, Lord, that we have taken a deep look into Acts chapter 14. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the pleasure that it is to not only preach it, but to hear it, to study it, to learn it, to live it. And Lord, as we sing this last song, Father, I pray that our hearts will rejoice, Lord, that we've been filled, we've feasted on your word, Lord, it has satisfied us. So let us sing now, Lord, in a way that says, I have a heart full and I want to return it to you in praise.
Lord, would you help us do that? Help us to be a church that sees the value of making disciples and that we are so willing to tie up our ship to those whose faith is struggling to help them and encourage them to continue in their faith all the way to the end of their lives. Lord, let us be a church, Lord, that testifies of our great God and experiences the power of community, of having godly brothers and sisters around us, Lord, and knowing that we're covered in the blood of Christ and we testify of who you are. Let us be a church who has the pleasure of godly elders overseeing us. Lord, raise those elders up, invigorate them. Lord, help them to have kindness and gentleness and love and teeth to lead and to protect and to care. Lord, that's the church we want to be. We need your help to be it. We ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.